Welcome to Social Evolution. I'm Michael Borcelli, and I'm joined here by my constant co-host. Max Borders, how's everybody doing today? Yeah, it's good to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about AI, artificial intelligence. Kind of a hot topic. You know, I'm really excited about this episode today because we get to follow up with our consciousness episode. And we impact so many ideas about the relationship between mind and brain in that episode, which is really about the relationship between what we call mental properties and physical mm -hmm. properties. With the AI episode, that's a really good tee up for some of our conversation today. And I'm so excited to get into it with you. So let's get started, okay? One of the first things I want to try to do with you, and, and by the way, Michael, I'm, I want to acknowledge that you are both a computer scientist and a philosopher by training in your mm -hmm. background. And this is a, an especially good thing to have as a conversation partner today on the issue of mm -hmm. AI. So let's get started with some of the sort of popular understandings of artificial intelligence, because I, th I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of for lack of a better way of putting it, goofy shit out there. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And I'd like to think that this episode is a way to help people start to parse what's interesting and what's not, what's fruitful, area of inquiry and what's not, and start off by really uh, talking about some of the some of the more fundamental issues in this whole very popular and often misunderstood discipline. So let's start about what I, where I think is an obvious place to start. What is the, what is intelligence? That's a great question. Yeah, um, I think what's cool about <clears throat> this question is like you know it's right in the name, artificial intelligence, and like you said, the hype around AI, you know, is really you know all over the place. You know, this idea that AI is you know, going to change everything or it's already changed so many things. And these terms like deep learning or machine learning get thrown around and the algorithms that the social media networks use and Google uses or self-driving cars, the robots and the dogs. Boston Dynamics dogs that 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 never stop until they hunt you <laughs> down and kill you. <laughs> so if we look at the, the way it occurs in the media hype cycle or in our sci-fi TV shows and movies, you know, it seems inevitable that, you know, we are going to be living in a world where something like AI either, you know, exists or or will exist and is going to affect and, you know, every aspect of society. So we may as well learn about it. And, you know, asking, you know, what is intelligence is as good a place to start off as any. Uh, but it's the, the funny thing is, is like we don't have a coherent answer to this. Like, I mean, I don't think there's any agree agreement <laughs> like um, an, uh, an AI researcher named Marcus Hutter, I think, did a whole survey of the literature on like many definitions of intelligence. There's a paper he came up mm -hmm. with with all these different ones. They came up with their own definition and they called it, um, I think, something like the, the ability to pursue goals within a variety of environments, the ability to, to successfully accomplish goals within a variety of environments. And there's okay. there's there's a few things in there. There's like success and what that means. Uh, there's goals, what that means, right? Like, and then there's environments right. and what and that means, goals? right? And, uh, but it yeah. does capture something, I think that 
it that does fit our intuition about it. Like we, you know, if if a if a thing did, you know, was able to only pursue one particular kind of goal successfully in only a certain limited kind of environment, you can think of like a chess playing program. You wouldn't necessarily say this has mm-hmm. intelligence in 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 the most widely or broadly construed sense. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And I think about human beings. We have what is known as instrumental mm-hmm. rationality. This sounds somewhat mm-hmm. familiar, somewhat uh, similar to what you just described. Instrumental rationality being a faculty of human beings to pursue ends and to ask oneself what is what is the most fruitful or efficient path to pursuing those ends. And we have economics predicated on this idea mm-hmm. to some degree, and we have computer science as well not to mention just notions of rationality of human beings. But rationality and intelligence aren't necessarily the same thing, although they're connected. So we do have this very vague notion that we're trying to apprehend. Mm -hmm. And yet we all have a, at least, I think, an intuitive notion of what Mm -hmm. intelligence is enough to, uh, for someone like Ray Kurzweil to postulate the, the technological singularity. And, and that's a, that's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good, maybe place to set the stage, uh, is the technological singularity. Can you, can you unpack that really quickly? Yeah. Before we get there, can we hover on intelligence just a little bit first, a little bit more? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go move too far a- away from that, but I also want to acknowledge that, that there are just so, so many definitions and so right. many notions around intelligence that it's it's going to be really difficult for us to unpack but we can we can yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna settle it once and for all i just want to say a few things pop up in people's minds when they think about intelligence one is a iq testing intelligence and then the other one is um sure this idea of multiple intelligences and there's this uh, underneath the theory of the iq test is this idea that there's a, a thing called the g factor the general intelligence and the IQ mm-hmm. test was invented by a guy who noticed positive correlations across school subjects. So it's sort of this idea that like, Oh, like if you're really good at verbal, you are also good at math. Right. And if you're less good at math, you're less good at verbal. And this sort of kind of contradicts this idea of multiple intelligences that we have, you know, body or, you know, sport fitness intelligence. And it's almost like that multiple intelligence theory, which is more recent uh, Howard Gardner, I think kind of like, these these are yeah, trying to like Gardner. kind of create mm-hmm. this idea that like oh you might be sort of good in one and less good in the other, um and instead of sort of one sort of general faculty so, so there are some people who actually have skeptical a skeptical view that there is a such thing as intelligence at all and I just wanted to just acknowledge not only is there a variety of definitions of what we mean by intelligence some people are skeptical about the entire idea that there's even like there's just sort of like this thing called intelligence. You just have sort of more and more of it as though it's kind of like a, like a linear thing. Like, you know, it's like there's intelligence and then there's just more of it. Or like a quantity in a, in a beaker, you know, like uh, if I can fill it up to, to five units, uh, uh, then maybe I can fill it up to 10 units. There's also the idea that people are disposed differently. I think Howard Gardner's idea is that people uh, were evolved in different contexts, and probably uh, tribal groups had different people with different dispositions that allowed that conferred different advantages to the group by virtue of that pluralism. So some were really good at identifying 
very fine-grained features of rocks and trees, and that would have been handy and helpful in certain kinds of contexts out on the Paleolithic yep. steppe. And why, and then others were were better at re logical reasoning and mathematics and all this kind of stuff. So you you you, it is intuitive to think that there are different species of intelligence. But once we start to postulate that there is not only this thing called intelligence, and then there are different subtypes of intelligence. How the how do those relate to each other? As you asked earlier, these are all various rabbit trails on a single yes. question that will perplex and hold us back if we continue to try to unpack those yep. definitions yep. and 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 directions totally, totally. yeah and, and you know it's it's a perennial question of philosophers you know as far back as aristotle who tried to kind of like think about thinking you know like the what, what does it mean to reason mm -hmm. properly you know philosophers of this ilk in many cultures not just western philosophy but like there's this whole line of thought which is kind of like trying to think about what thinking is. And you could you could make the argument that this whole aspect of philosophy has just been a, something like a precursor to AI. AI research tends to kind of think about these problems. Like, what do we mean by reason, rationality, intelligence, mm. and yeah. those kinds of things? And moral reasoning. Oh, yeah. Which we'll get to today. <laughs> yeah. So let, let's, do the, let's do this technological singularity because, you know, Kurzweil has kind of waned a little bit in his popularity, but I remember in the late '90s and in the uh, you know the early 2000s, he you know he had this book, "The Age of Spiritual Machines." I actually went to a, a symposium mm -hmm. in at, at Stanford in 2000 called "Will Humans Be Replaced by Spiritual Machines by 2100?" And Doug Hofstadter was there, and Kevin Kelly was there from Wired, and and uh, wow. yeah, Kurzweil was there. It was like overflow room. It was just this whole kind of thing you know people were talking about bill joy mm -hmm. was there he had just written his like uh his why the future doesn't need us manifesto yeah, against yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah so it was it was a it was fun and exciting and you know kurzweil has a certain way of talking about it you know i don't know if he originated you know singularity comes from like uh black holes and gravitation but the technological singularity was they use that term that way because similarly to like a black hole event horizon like you can't know what's going on past that. This idea that like mm -hmm. there will be some kind of like, you know, almost a magical mythical event at some point past mm -hmm. which we, it's yeah, a it's a trans, like a phase transition or something. And we can't see beyond it and really think about what civilization will be like after it because it will be so radically different. We really can't even imagine it in a way, you know. It, which is kind of funny because sci-fi writers have been imagining really radically fantastical worlds for a really long time. But this idea that like it's sort of beyond our ability to predict accurately and that's going to come from some either some kind of compounding returns from like an exponential function. You know, he loves to draw these exponential kind of curves, you know, this this idea that, you know, you're going to double the grain of rice on the second chess square and then you're going to quadruple it and you're going to have this kind of explosion you're like oh that it's sort of surprise it sort of sneaks up on you right it's kind of boom and then it happens and it's like a huge amount of stuff well and you know intuitively when we look at some of the uh some of the ai research that's going on now and they're they're now up to number four of the what what's it called P people can sign up to play with it the AI machine. GPT-3? Yeah, GPT-3, and they're working on 4 right now. Yep. And 4 is underway, but you can now access G GPT-3. 
And there's some pretty amazing stuff that comes out in terms of results mm -hmm. that are intuitively go make make the case of this sort of exponential growth of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. far mm -hmm. more plausible. So Way Kurzweil does it, and and it, it it bears repeating what this you know what he's talking about here. In case uh, a listener's never heard of it, I think it bears repeating. The idea of computational power moving into the future flows in this like Moore's law mm -hmm. fashion where Moore's law is computing power doubles every 18 months, roughly. And even if it uh, runs into these certain kind of barriers and, and fits and starts, it basically gets on track with, with yep. new innovations. And so computing power continues to increase. And with that in massively parallel computing, you can start to get the idea that not only are the machines getting smarter, but that there could be a point beyond which if maybe the machines uh, uh, through software or whatever are able to self-replicate or able to start to teach themselves to, you know, and have this sort of combinatorial yep. effect of what we're calling intelligence right now in executing various tasks, doing various things, whether that be compose a piece of writing or solve a mathematical equation yeah. or do protein folding. These are all applications that are currently underway. They're getting better and better. And sometimes they're better than humans in these very narrow departments. Yes. The idea, if you extrapolate that into the future, is that there'll be a point at which the machines, quote unquote, wake up. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Um, or at least that they'll be more intelligent than human beings and be sentient or agentic, at least in some way where mm -hmm. the, the, the humans no longer really have control over the, over them, over it. I don't know what you want to call mm -hmm. it, uh, but that the intelligence starts to be not only have a sense of agency, but is more intelligence, more intelligent than any given human being on whatever dimension you want to measure. Yep. So that's the general idea pushing into the yep, future. Totally. And there's, you know, th to give it its due, there's plenty of um, either, you know, evidence that has happened. You know, if you kind of look at the way, you know, Moore was one of the founders of Intel and he talks about like, you know, you kind of get this doubling of, you know, density of computational units on a piece of silicon like every 18 months. But if you actually look at the last 10 years, especially given the the way that we've been able to do do big data across many many um many many servers like it's called grid computing it, we actually have a way double like way exceeded Moore's law in terms of like the doubling is like way faster in, in, on along certain dimensions but you don't even need to do exponentials like the other the other idea is this um it was originated by uh Jack Good, he was a a colleague of Turing's, you know, at the British war effort in World War II, and you know, he had this idea of ultra intelligence, like ultra intelligence, and this idea of um an intelligence explosion where you can sort of like use a thing. It's sort of a recursive self improvement, like use the thing you have now to build the next thing, which is even better. And there's some truth to this too, right? You, we have all kinds of computer aided uh computer design software right like you know the the engineers at intel use pretty sophisticated software to build the next design of the hardware right and so in, or you could think about um the way that AlphaGo, which made headlines the successor to it was alpha zero this beating kind of the the world champion at go this asian stone game 
lease at all, right? Mm-hmm. But then they were like, hey, cool. Well, instead of using training data from like historical Go games, which you can pump into the, the AI, which is what AlphaGo did, you can do this thing where you can just have AlphaGo do what's called self-play, play itself, and create another copy of itself. And this is where you kind of get a recursively self-improving thing where it's kind of like, it's just getting better at what it does by essentially playing against itself over and over and over again. And so then you you can sort of see this this idea makes sense in a way. Like just, ext- okay, now just extrapolate that. It's almost like, and now just more of that, right? Like more memory, more data, more processors, yes. more of a thing that's improving itself. Which is what, what we do as human beings in a very slow, laborious, limited by our wetware, all this yeah. kind of stuff. We improve our collective intelligence over yes. time. You know, none of us knows how to make a toaster. Right. Uh, for example, there's a, a great guy, uh, uh, a great, uh, this this English guy who's a, a industrial designer. I think his name is Thwaites, uh, something like that. In any case, there's a great little TED talk about it. And he, you know, he wants to know how to build a toaster and he tries to build it himself. He tries to mine. I mean, we're talking like from scratch, mine right. the ore, <laughs> you know, develop right. the plastic yeah. Yeah. himself, you know, instead of taking pieces that other other minds have had to contribute to and just piecing it together, like as if it were a puzzle that arrived, you, you, he's trying to do it from scratch. But the, the whole idea behind this is that human beings have a level of collective intelligence that, that, that no single individual intelligence could possibly yes. have. Nobody can build a toaster. Nobody can build a pencil right. even uh, to, to, to refer to the famous story, uh, uh, yep. I pencil yep. uh, from Leonard Reed. This this really changes the game. When you think about artificial intelligence, whether we're talking about networked processors or a single just massive supercomputer able to begin to pretend that it's in competition with itself or collaboration with itself or mm-hmm. both in and parameterizing what is competition and what is collaboration mm-hmm. in order to come up with come up with this gestalt that is better or more intelligent than a single unit of that intelligence, whatever you want to call yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> is itself mind boggling because we understand collective intelligence The you know, our human beings engaged in this sort of mental collaboration across space and time is very different from what this can do in parallel right now within a matter of seconds. Yeah. Holy shit. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and you know, the, if you kind of follow Kurzweil and his, you know, acolytes and, there's almost this like future utopia, right? That that comes out the other end, right? Like these machines, they acquire more knowledge. They acquire their, then they start innovating themselves or they start, you know, doing science or something or, or like whatever it is that they're doing in parallel with us is, is just an accelerant to this larger, longer, whatever you want to call it, scientific, technological engineering kind of process that humans have been doing for hundreds of years if not thousands of years, and this just makes it go faster. And then we'll end up in a world of, you know, super abundance, right? Like more like leisure for everyone or like all the menial labor will be taken over by the robots. And even some of the cognitive labor that some of our smartest people do can be matched, if not exceeded by these machines. And, you know, there's, there's a wonderful future ahead where, you know, there's all kinds of, all kinds of, (laughs) it's sort of, I, I imagine you know the it's it's sort of like this this patrician class all of humanity is this patrician class and and we imagine that these super intelligent 
um, entities, mm-hmm. whether or not they have rights and what that looks like is another question altogether. And one I hope we yep. get to touch on, but that these entities will se- essentially serve us. But if they're more intelligent than we are and they're sentient, why would they serve us and not instead demand our yes. service yes. to them? Now we're now we're kind of getting into the more doom scenario. So so this this is a little bit of the hype cycle, which, you know, I imagine listeners are familiar with if they've tracked anything having to do with futurism or transhumanism or AI in the news or in our sci-fi movies. And you have like, you know, I remember growing up, one of my favorite movies was Space Odyssey, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And, you know, how 9000, you know, attacks the astronauts. And then there was Terminator. And, you know, we we can't help but imagine it, it goes way back. Right. It's like Franken's Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, like this. This idea of a uh, building something that is out of our control or turns on us in some way, and um, this is kind of the dystopian version, right? Like this is like, well, what if it becomes so smart, like you said, that it wakes up or whatever? It's it's just so vastly exceeds our capacities that it, you know, treats us like like ir- irrelevant, like ants or something like that. You know, we yeah like yeah. Ants, I mean, we yeah. we sort of know. I mean. We know animals are probably, you know, have some kind of experience or experience pain like mammals, right? But we still, you know, experiment on monkeys or something like this. You know, like we treat them in a second class way, like as pets or as, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, Matrix kind of had this whole thing. Where we, we were being used as batteries. Who knows what they'll do to us? Test, yeah. test, test our vaccines <laughs> on the macaques, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and the, you know, these animals aren't stupid. They're... Right. But once once the artificial intelligence gets to be superior to us on every conceivable dimension, and we can talk about what those dimensions yep. are, then we have then a lot of people like Bill Joy were wanted to know, you know, what the hell are we in the process of creating? We're getting to be as yep. gods. We better get freaking good at it, as Stuart Brand mm-hmm. would say. So I I sort of I have a I have a lot of uh, thoughts about this sort of dystopian scenarios. I have some concerns. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think there is a lot of silver lining. But one way people have tried to talk about a silver lining to some of these more dystopian scenarios is the idea of programming artificial intelligence from the beginning in a, in a very deep way, fundamental to the code, to be loving or altruistic or moral. So now we have another big concept like intelligence that is yep. morality. What the hell does it mean? We've been arguing about what it means to be good since we could talk and we still haven't figured that out on so many different dimensions. And yet that's the answer to how we make sure that these these super beings don't destroy us or use us as slaves or ignore us and treat us as ants. Well, let's (laughs) I want to. Yes, we're going to get there. Like but but we're sort of. um. I kind of painted, you know, to review our conversation so far, this picture of sort of like the, what the hype cycle looks like in the popular imagination, the media and the sci-fi version, mm-hmm. Terminator, et cetera. And um, I want to like at least peek under the hood there because I think there's there's a real internal, uh, within the field of AI, that this is a real issue. But I also think the way that it gets kind of portrayed and talked about in popular culture can can at times be a little bit misleading. So wait a minute. What do you mean by peek under the hood of AI? Are you talking about the 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 programming, the kind of programming that's going on in AI no, right now? The, or the internal discussions about... amongst AI researchers and so forth. So so let's just, let's just gotcha. take, for example, the Terminator scenario, which is kind of funny because, you know, 
<laughs> I think it was this idea of beneficial AI or a friendly AI. This is what kind of the term. And, you know, Stuart Russell co-authored um, the main textbook in in uh, artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, he's written his own book about beneficial AI. And he's actually concerned about this scenario of the, you know, the, the dystopian one. Um, and, you know, he gets interviewed. He'd be like, whatever you do, don't put a you know picture of the Terminator on my article. And the, the interviewer goes like, I have no control over that. The editor is going to do that. And then they're like, all right. And then they put a picture of the Terminator on the thing. And, and, and the reason why he, people like him in the, in the AI world sort of hate that happening is because it kind of misconstrues a little bit of what the risk is, right? It's not like there's going to be necessarily a war between like the robots are going to like turn on us, right? Or want to kill us, right? It's a little bit more like how we treat fleas or something like this, but it's not even, not even that. Like it's actually, this is called the um the, the Midas uh problem, or you can think of uh in the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the, the idea that we tell it, to, you know, you know the myth of Midas. You know, he wishes gets the ability, everything he touches turns to gold, and then he can't eat. He turns all his food to gold. He turns his daughter into gold. He, he loses his like. It's like um the the issue here is um the the thing is gets too good at doing a particular goal that we thought that we wanted, but it's not what we really wanted. Right. You know, Mickey mouse and the sorcerer's apprentice is just all the buckets. And it's like, ah, no, no, not quite. That's not it. Right. And like the, the fear here mm -hmm. is we would have something that had such incredible capacities and we would tell it to do something that it would just go ahead and do the thing that we told it to do. But it's so capable that it essentially you know, the Nick Bostrom talks about the paperclip maximizer. It just starts taking over resources in a way that that is sort of exponential, right? It's kind of like, no, no, no. and But we can't stop it because it's gotten so good at pursuing this goal. You're like, well, what about an off switch? And it's like, well, it's already figured out that you're going to try to turn it off. And that's going to stop it from accomplishing the goal you told it. So it's going to prevent you from turning it off, right? Like if it's that intelligent, right? If it's If it's a super intelligence of this nature... The problem really is not like some kind of like robot war. The problem is it gives us too much of a good thing in a way, you know, that causes other, you know, econ economists talk about the externalities of that problem, right? Like, so this is, this I would say is a little bit more the, some people, some AI researchers take this as the problem. Not so much the HAL 9000 or the Terminator, Skynet thing, waking up. It's more like the the Midas, you know, King Midas problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I I remember, and, and look, um, a great book on intelligence and AI is Nick Bostrom's book, Super Intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, I got only partially way through it and left it on an airplane. So I need to buy it and get the rest uh, read. But I remember being impressed with it. And I, this is after I released my book, uh, the, the Social Singularity, uh, back in 2018. And, um, you know, I, I try to paint a ho more hopeful vision around AI. You know, that book is more about decentralization and this, the decentralization process of yeah. humanity that we described in other episodes, yeah. particularly around uh, digital ledgers and so on, and how this works in parallel with the the the, the, the technological singularity. The, this is a major theme of mm -hmm. the book. 
And in one of the conversations, I um, I talk about, uh, and you've mentioned Damasio's book on, on the mm-hmm. show. Um, remind me of the title There's of that There's a number book. of them. The Feeling of What Happens is the one I often talk about with this somatic marker hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of another one, but in Descartes any case, error. it's Descartes' error. I'm pretty sure it's in that book. Um, and Damasio talks about a fellow who's had a brain injury. Yes. Okay. And, and let's, let's, let's talk about human brains yeah. for a second, because there is something interesting about human brains that has to do with intelligence. We know right. that because we're intelligent yeah. beings. Okay. And we have this late evolved thing, uh, in our brains called the prefrontal cortex. And it, it connects up with the rest of the brain, essentially. Um, rest of the brain, if, and, and I'll appeal to both Damasio and to Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt talks about the elephant and the rider. Yeah. The rider being our rationality or our logic, which has evolved late in the game with the prefrontal cortex and allows us to really, you know, not only control our behavior in a lot of ways, but in order to, but also really to engage in the kind of reasoning uh, that we might associate with logic, mathematics, and yeah. so on. Yeah. Okay. The system two stuff. Now, like Kahneman talks about the system two. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. System two. We have the rest of the brain, which Height uh, calls the elephant, which is these, this, it, it itself is really quite intelligent, but it is more of an intuition uh, type of, an intuitive type of intelligence, more of a felt intelligence. You might associate it with the heart and the gut, for yeah. example. Um, and there are probably philo- physiological reasons for that association with heart and gut, but this, but I can be metaphorical mm-hmm. for a moment. So we have this very tippy tip of our brains yes. that we call, you know, the center of logical reasoning in the prefrontal cortex. And we have this rest of the thing. That's the rider. And then we have the elephant that is this intuitive for, sort of felt intelligence. That's the rest of our brain. And this is a holistic and embodied manner of thinking. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Damasio discusses uh, uh, this man who was, a, I think he was an executive or a CEO of some sort, extremely intelligent mm-hmm. man mm-hmm. And from an IQ standpoint, um, and suffers a brain injury. Yeah. And he disconnects that prefrontal cortex from the rest of his brain in some way. And I'm not sure about the, the exact neurophysiology right. of it, but, you know, you yep. can find it in, in that book. But the, but the essence is, um, just to go ahead and appeal to height, that the elephant and the rider were separated. They were severed from each other. And so this man tried to make decisions using only his logic and rationality, yeah. but couldn't. He could not make decisions because he could not, because it was so much intuitive and felt in the reasoning process mm-hmm. that there was no way to reason his way to it. There's almost like this intimate connection between the felt or the motivated or one's dispositional concept of the good yeah. that we take for granted. You can't reason your way to decisions is essentially the upshot of uh, Damasio's guy who had suffered from that particular uh, yeah. ailment. And so now we have these machines that seem like they are just like prefrontal cortices on steroids. Mm-hmm. But that, but from some intuitive sense of the rest of our brains that we associate with feeling, intuition, rapid co- uh, rapid cognition – there is um, there is something very intimate about that connection that we don't want to throw away as we undertake our artificial intelligence investigations. Yep. 
right? And yet, then we start talk to talk about consciousness and all of these other associated mental properties that we discussed in our consciousness yeah. episode. And we don't want to throw those out with the bathwater yes. either. So the question is, if we're just making these ratiocination yeah. machines, these massively massive computing prefrontal cortices, is that a different from these embodied brains and to what extent is it in and do we need that other part in order to have a thing that makes decisions thinks feels has motivations intuitively i want to say yes we need that and we're nowhere near it yet yes so you you have just like there's so much in what you said and you kind of like plopped right in the middle of actually multiple different internal debates in the field of artificial intelligence which is kind of fun like see if you can parse one for us yeah, I'll, I'll do a, a few of them. Like one of them is this idea of um, intelligence as more just kind of a pure, you might say like an epistemic kind of rationality. Um, like the thing that you're associating with the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex uh, versus something that has drives or motivations, right? Like an agent that is like a, a survival, you know, body like we are, right? Um, and there's... You know, it, it this this view that um, you know agency is required to make decisions. I think logically is true, and in fact, when we create um, a certain, there's a certain category of AI algorithms that are called reinforcement learning. There's like a reward channel, which is sort of like a, a Skinner box, like in code. Basically, like there's some way you're, <laughs> you're kind of giving it positive reinforcement when it gets closer to your goal or negative reinforcement gets later to your goal. You could say, in a sense, this is a kind of way of mocking up agency or motivation, right? It may be in a super simplified way, like a Go playing computer is really just trying to like win at Go and it's reward me or they they took a, an earlier version of DeepMind, which are the folks that made uh, AlphaGo, right, and plugged into Atari video games, right, and it was just sort of like its reward function was just like the score number, right, just trying to get the score to go up, right, like, so once you kind of create that in your AI architecture, you have actually created something that has a certain, like, very limited, narrow agency, and is like, you know, behaving to maximize this utility function, to kind of borrow a concept from economics here. Yeah. Econ. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, this this actually goes a, a, le a level deeper. So there's um uh, the uh, the there's one thought that like what the neocortex is really doing. Um, neocortex. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. Thank you for the prefrontal me is just part, it's just part of it. That's just the prefrontal. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, there, there's a few like architectural things you can say like, hey, look, it, it looks the, the neocortex looks more similar than like the, you know, the brainstem and the medulla and the cerebellum, which is true. And there's a whole um, theory of cortical columns, which Kurzweil in his book, How to Build a Mind, and Jeff Hawkins, uh, he's the guy that made Palm Pilot. I don't know if you know this guy. He's a he's a big AI intelligence researcher. He's He just did a book called A Thousand Brains and another one called On Intelligence some years back. And it they're basically saying the same-ish kind of thing where these cortical columns are doing nothing really more than creating models of the world that allow for prediction, right? So so it's kind of like take sensory input, you know, and this kind of like sort of radiates from the lower parts of the brain or whatever, like the senses are kind of coming in and this um, 
neocortical columns uh, are doing something like um, formulating models of the world, uh, you know, in a way that kind of correlates to, you know, what we think of as like in philosophy, like folk psychology, theory of mind, these kinds of things. It's like, you might even say these are the things that kind of are the things that got plugged in at the beginning of the scientific process that helped us formulate hypotheses to begin with, right? And actually we can then internalize these new models like by taking science class, right? And then we think of, hey, oh, this is, you know, we would make this prediction based on this model that we've internalized, right? Like, but that's what that, it's almost like a general purpose intelligence in this part of the brain does. This, mm -hmm. this uh, pure- So sort of, is it sort of like uh, representational, representational models of the world coupled with Bayesian analysis gives us something akin to, um, you know, prediction forecast and agentic behavior. Yes. It gives us the prediction thing that would then be kind of used by the body to, to take actions. Like the Damasio guy who has the lower part disconnect from the upper part. It's like, he can reason all about all the different ways, like, you know, but he doesn't he want, doesn't want anything. anything. Right. Right. So, you know, and, and, and right now it looks like artificial intelligence doesn't want anything. Not in the same way we do. Right. Like, so, so right, this is right. So, th so to give the bottom line of this debate is like, there's people that are like, like Jeff Hawkins who are like, no way do we ever want to put motives into it because that's exactly the thing that'll get us these fucking stupid scenarios that are in our dystopian sci-fi. Yes. We only want it to That's do. Right. He's like, look, our AI should never be anything more than something like what the neocortex does, but nothing to do with what the body does. Right. We should whatever create in whatever in the computer code models of that part that doesn't do anything besides create something like a predictive model of a certain whatever external reality of some kind and that's all that it does okay let me let me ask you this real yeah. quick uh, based on this debate yeah. right okay so remember from our consciousness episode and i'm not gonna dredge that yeah. back up just just a yeah. quick thing right um you know you uh, it's the idea of desire right and and part of the reason that the guy who had the brain injury couldn't make decisions is because he d desired nothing he had no hierarchy of values right and your neocortex doesn't have desires it's just it's just, you know, doing logical analysis, mm -hmm. but there has to be that felt component, yeah. right? So when we think about the human brain, it, it's, it's very difficult to talk about motivation, to talk about desire without employing the sort of folk psychological yep. stuff, uh, you know, mental property, desire, yeah. and, it's, and consciousness. So that's, you know, put that to one side for mm -hmm. a second. But then there's also like the Boston Dynamics robot dogs. It seems like they desire they they have been programmed in a in, a, in to a telos, mm -hmm. and that is to come hell or high water to get to the target, right? Let's just say the target is some guy holding a, a baby doll, mm -hmm. right? And they unleash the Boston Dynamics robot dogs, and there's a whole field of obstacles and things, and and the Boston Dynamics dogs learn how to crawl, learn how to jump, learn how to do all these different things, but they're fundamental telos mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is reach the guy with the baby doll and sit mm -hmm. there. Okay. I'm just making that up. That, I assume they do shit like that at Boston dynamics. I don't know, but yeah, but all right. So when I observe the behavior from without, as if I were 
you know, um, uh, BF Skinner in the 1940s, I would say it doesn't matter what's in the black box. Those, those dogs desire that goal. Right. But ever since then with Chomsky and the whole cognitive revolution and cognitive science and neuroscience, and of course the philosophers who are saying, whoa, 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 easy now behaviorists. We know that human beings have desires. And so, but we have no clue how to program a desire itself, like strictly speaking, a desire. We only know, at least at this point in our AI development, how to program the <clears throat> the artificial intelligence to pursue the telos. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a meaningful distinction or am, am I missing I th- something? I think so. Let me see if this response kind of addresses it. Like, like there... <laughs> There is a way that, you know, sometimes AI research sort of appears to be like, well, let's just try to model what the human mind is doing. And this is sort of more in the pure science, try to understand humans thing. And then there's kind of a more um, another side of AI, which is sort of like, well, we don't care how a human would do it. Let's just make this thing, you know, create a certain outcome, like create a certain result or goal. It's called the objective yeah. function. And we we kind of don't care how it does it, if it looks like the way a human mind would do it or not. We just give it some kind of um like like a reward function like in a reinforcement learning scenario or something equivalent to that, analogous to that. And then we like, you know, run it through its paces many many times over until it it creates a certain level of performance. Like a lot of the the neural networks or the deep learning machine learning algorithms. I don't, I don't even I don't even know what that means though, Porch. Like that that is really counterintuitive okay. to me. Okay. The programming a reward into a computer, like even with a mouse, a mouse analog sitting in a Skinner yeah. cage, I can imagine, <clears throat> especially after, you know, post-behaviorist cognitive science and philosophy yeah. and neuroscience, that rats have uh there's something it is like for that rat to go, mm, that's some damn good pellet. When I push the lever, I get yeah. this thing. Ooh, that's some good, that's a yeah, good yeah, pellet. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I love me yeah. some pellet. Yum, 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 yum. Right? That's a reward. Yeah. So what does it mean to reward a, a robot? <laughs> so, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking more abstractly in terms of the AI computer program, but I think it would work equivalently here. It's basically, you know, I say something like, look, there's a, there's just a, a place in the computer's memory that it has a number in it, right? And this is a, an oversimplification, but I could simply say, hey, you know, you're doing good if that number's getting bigger or you're doing bad if that number's getting smaller, right? And then I can create this other thing, like it's just uh, something like a search engine does, like an image classifier. Like um, this has definitely been a big breakthrough uh, in the past 10 years of like the ability of, um, like a search engine like that Google has to be able to describe what's inside of a photo, right? Like, but how did it get there? Well, well, it got there because we took all these millions of images, right? And we took some subset of those millions of images and we had humans, you know, classify the stuff, right? And then we put it into this neural network as input and we said, okay, you know, this is what we call it. And then we test it and we create a test that says like, look, here's some shit. Here's some images you haven't seen, 
right? And like, how well are you doing? Like classifying it. And then we give it a grade, right? And the grade that we give it is like the score in this number. Okay. So it's like, if the grade is, is going up lower than X, then go back to the drawing board. If the grade is above X, then do something else. Something, something like, like that. This. So we're really yeah. talking about ascribing folk psychological language to algorithms. Right. I mean, this is, we're, we can get into like deep territory here. Like is, is our brains doing anything really differently than that? Right. Kind of trying to maintain some kind of internal homeostasis or we, maybe we have a variety of signals, you know, like the, the pleasure from sex or like, you know, eating enough food and our blood sugar, you know, like you could sort of <clears> say <throat> that these are internal variables inside the, the mind body apparatus, <laughs> tracking something. And it's like, Oh yeah. Like that's where our, kind of urges start coming from is like when these homeostasis variables what it is like to have an orgasm going, right yeah yeah <laughs> totally so you know, whether it's exactly the same it's definitely not exactly the same but like the, the analog is there i mean this is where the kind of standard models of ai have come from is this idea of like well we can we can create a thing where we define, you know, performance on a certain narrow task, right? And we can, you know, if if you use the reinforcement learning style or the behaviorist style of AI program, which is only one part of it, then what you're doing is you're creating a feedback loop, which is kind of allowing this, you might say like a, a like this neural network or this, you know, computer to just get better and better at it sort of approaches, never becomes perfect. There's always some kind of error bar, right? But this is, they're sort of like, look, this thing is now doing just as well as, you know, some average humans we tested. And we go like, cool. It's like 94%, whatever rate at like classifying this set of a million photos, just as good as, you know, <laughs> the average from these hundred people. Right. Right. And you kind of go like, that's cool. Then there's the guy who, you know, who's the <clears throat> the Korean fellow, who's the greatest Go player in the world. Yep. And Lisa Dahl. Yep. And he gets he gets uh, finally defeated by Google's uh, AI program. Yep. And 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 so we see artificial intelligence on these narrow dimensions outperforming humans. Yes. Um, based on something. Yeah. And yet, and, and 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 they seem to be agentic in that regard, which is to say, goal oriented. Totally. Okay, teleological. Yes. We are specifying the goal; they aren't. So that's one difference. But like we're we're yeah. specifying externally, and the agent sort of like you know does its thing until it gets as good, and we're like, you're really good at that. Is 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 that an important uh, singularitarian leap when the artificial intelligence can specify its own telos? I don't know if that's a required idea. Like the the, the I'll tell you where the issue kind of comes in. It, it's um it's part of superintelligence and uh, uh Bostrom and a guy named Amahundro, I think they talked about it um convergent instrumental uh goals and this idea of orthogonality. So so the orthogonality thesis is like you can have intelligence as a variable that is essentially independent of goals. Right. And you can have goals can be varied, but intelligence itself can be applied. You know, again, we're sort of making a little bit of a philosophical leap to say, like, you fucking understand what that is. Right. But the, the, the premise of this theory is that these things vary independently. And so if you got something that was like ultra intelligent or super intelligent, 
independently of whatever goal you specified, it's going to have things like uh, do it faster or uh, make sure I'm guaranteed to do it. So prevent anybody from turning my me off, right? Like it'll, it'll have these things like acquire more memory, right? So I can simulate more um, predictions into the future to ensure that I will head off it off at the pet. And this is the kind of thing you can be like, well, you know, make as many paper clips as you want. Or you could even say like, you know, it doesn't even matter what the goal is. You can, you could just imagine that the computer is trying to kind of reduce some amount of like uncertainty or, or to prevent some kind of like, um, thing that will thwart it from doing its goal. And so then it just kind of like acquires more resources, right? Like basically infinitely is, is the idea here, unless you sort of, spe it's, it's, sort of just, it's just generating a bunch of externalities in the space of like the unspecified part of the goal. Is this the King Midas thing or the, the pa paperclip example? Like, and, and this is, this is where we get to the existential threats. Yes, piece, yes. Right. This is the, these are the doomsday scenarios. I mean, and it's, it's really around this idea that the the telos the pursuit of the this particular goal along some dimension starts to have these secondary effects Correct. that are detrimental to humanity and planet yeah. um okay um now before before we move on i want i want to see if there's anything else you want to say about that piece because I, I do want to acknowledge that the concerns about this are very real yep and if there's anything that we miss in unpacking why these concerns are very real. I want to make sure we get that into the show before we start to address ways to perhaps mitigate these concerns or uh, how we would address them through subsequent research agendas. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that there's been another kind of access axis of debate in the AI community that's, that's really closely related to this. And this will probably feed into our discussions about mitigating it and this kind of thing and you know if we step all the way back there there are some people who are just like a computer will never simulate intelligence in the same way a human brain can this is the kind of john searle sort of like biological chauvinism thing we're not going to talk about them right some people okay. say that and that that's worth paying attention to but we're strictly talking about ai right now and and then there's the view that um kind of like Jeff Hawkins says, like, look, you would have to, you would have to give it sort of these drives, these kind of self-serving drives. And we shouldn't ever give it the self-serving drives. We should only give it the ability to understand stuff kind of an, in an epistemic way. And I think there's some amount of debate there because you could, you know, this is the idea of an Oracle AI. It just gives you answers to questions, but like, um, the superintelligence risk people would say, well, you know, you could just say, you know, build a better map of the universe is a goal, right? And that goal itself would suffer from the same unintended consequences that the other goals would create. Um, even if the goal is just sort of like a beautiful, you know, understanding of the universe, right? It's just like, oh, I could just improve my theories mm -hmm. about the universe, you know, and I'm just going to keep acquiring resources to do that. Um, then there's another kind of debate, which is really a little bit more just about the timing and the priority of this, right? This 
super intelligence explosion idea, you know, was if, if we, if we rewound time, you know, to, you know, prior to, I don't know, 2010 or something like that, there was, or maybe even in the era from 2010 to 2015, there was a lot of people in the machine learning world, which is kind of like what Google is doing and DeepMind is doing, recommendation engines or ad click-through engines or these sorts of things going like, look, we're just over here doing real shit. This is real engineering. It We're using these advanced methods that come under the umbrella of AI techniques, right? Like, but it's fucking working, right? We just add more processors, add more memory, add more units to our neural network, add more layers, and we call it deep learning, whatever. We're making shit happen. That's there's there's nothing about what we're building over here that's gonna do this super intelligence explosion. So we're not fucking worried about it. We're sort of you're worrying about the wrong thing. You're kind of like you read you read too much sci-fi. You know what I mean? Like this kind of idea that these mm -hmm. general intelligence idea, the super intelligence explosion, the self-improving thing is a worry that's so far down the line, we shouldn't really be that concerned with it. And these two camps were sort of very separate from each other in a way. And I think um, the conversation kind of bridged around 2015. There was like a big Puerto Rico conference and Elon Musk and Sam Harris and all these people were there and Suddenly the the super intelligence explosion concept like broke Bostrom was there like kind of broke through to like a oh maybe we should be kind of con concerned about this thing. There's still some debate though as to like well are there more urgent problems like we don't really fucking these things are not intelligent in the same way the human mind is. No matter how many layers we put in our neural so maybe there's some fundamental breakthrough we need to do there or there's other alignment problems that these machine learning algorithms have, which are not super intelligence problems. So like, it really is kind of like, should we really be that concerned? Or should we be concerned about other things that the algorithms are doing to us already that are a problem, right? Like, you see what I mean? Yeah. Like the Tristan kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, Tristan Harris. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm mostly ambivalent or, or I guess you could say agnostic on the question of whether we should have deep concerns about this. Mm -hmm. And I tend to agree with the camp that says um, we're, n we're nowhere near that yet. Mm -hmm. And and yet I want to be very respectful to the position to say that we might be actually quite near that and don't know it because we don't fully understand the nature of ourselves. Right. And you and I in the other episode on consciousness, not to keep, you know, dredging that back up. But what we, we, we did talk about was. We don't really understand the nature of our own consciousness, our own intelligence, um, and and we could be in a in a kind of illusion about that. Yep. With respect to um, these sort of uh, mental properties, and it, and it, you know it's, it strikes me that so many of the concerns that intuitive concerns that we have about this are contingent upon mental properties, but I could be wrong about that. And so could, so could the, the, the rest of the, you know, cognitive scientists, moral philosophers, all these people. Um, it could very well be that it doesn't really matter what the motivation is in, in with respect to the artificial intelligent being. It could be that nevertheless, the execution of these uh, sophisticated algorithms results in behaviors 
that might as well be dangerous, that might as well be, that it's just, an, uh, just another separate parallel entity that represents a danger. Yes. And it really doesn't require any kind of mental properties in order to, to, to execute these algorithms yes. relentlessly. Yes. <laughs> and so we should be afraid yes. and we should keep an eye on it. Um, so that leads me to a question, a question then that, uh, that I hope you'll uh, allow us to transition, yeah. which is, um, given this sort of lack of understanding about this, some, and there's this, the guy, you sent me, you sent me this, uh, this podcast with this guy named Yas Yasan Gabriel, yep. who, um, is, I'm not sure where he's from, but he has he's a, a deep mind, a very lovely. He's a deep mind. Yeah. Yeah. He has a lovely English accent. He so I'm, it, he was at least educated in, in the UK and he, um, he has some very interesting things to say on this, and he is a, a, a philosopher by training, but it understands some of these dynamics obviously very well. And he is concerned with what does it mean to program artificial intelligence to be good? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and in order to answer that question, so we can maybe avoid some of these desperate scenarios that people describe with with these like super beings if they are indeed going to be super beings we have to know what it means to be good as human beings well we've been having that discussion for oh i don't know probably as long as we've been able to utter anything yeah yeah totally. <laughs> as human beings and we haven't been able to get quote unquote aligned around what it means to be good yes uh or 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 evil mm -hmm or not even in a Manichaean sense, uh, whether or not there is such a thing as a moral good or a moral truth. Right. I mean, so we have two two different sets of, of philosophical conundra, all yep. right? One is within what we call morality, mm -hmm. this, this philosophical dimension of, uh, you know, what you ought or ought not do, mm -hmm. right? to postulate moral truths. And if so, what are those moral truths? Because if we know them, then we should be able to program machines with them. Yep. And then there's an, another, we, we let's call it meta set of questions, which is, are moral truths even a thing? Or is there such thing as objective morality, something about the world that anything, an artificially intelligent being or a human being for that matter, can apprehend and know. Yes. And that is the meta ethical concern totally. of, of, uh, and, and so I will admit to you when I was listening to Yasan Gabriel that I am a, I am an anti realist when it comes to moral properties. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, that, um, morality is more or less a way that we use conventions and norms in a kind of grand negotiation with each other for various ends, but the overlap of those various ends is, to some degree, uh, which is uh, means that you can make morality, quote unquote, morality reducible to instrumental rationality in interesting ways. Now, Yasan Gabriel, who to whom we're appealing in this, and you sent me that great podcast from him, really lovely, bright guy. Um, I didn't agree with him on this matter. Mm -hmm. I think he is committed to the existence of moral uh, to, to moral realism. Yep. Right. At the meta ethical set of questions yep. and would say. There are all of these things that we can have. And it turns out he's kind of a Rawlsian, you know, he <laughs> believes in, 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 in this sort of Rawlsian rationale that we can sort of, um, 
use the use the contractarian rationale of Rawls in a kind of Kantian way to arrive at these set of moral norms. And one got gets the sense that you know he can he wants to like Rawls balance uh, you know justice is fairness and you know freedom and these kind of things to to derive some yeah. sense of justice or morality. But I'm I that I I found that kind of problematic. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of yeah. ways, I find Rawls problematic. So in any case, I don't want to go, I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails there, but I want to identify the problem of what it means to, to program artificial intelligence to be good. Let's start with that set of questions. Oh my gosh. So yes, let me, let me see if I can kind of echo this transition that we're making here just for clarity for myself and to make sure I'm tracking you and for the listener as well. Sure. So this idea of the control problem or the alignment problem that comes up in AI often comes up in these sci-fi scenarios or in this super intelligence explosion version of it, which is like the paperclip maximizer or the Midas touch, the King Midas problem, right? But this other side of it that you said was actually we might already have an alignment problem, right? This is, this is something that has happened, especially since 2016. You know, there's been all these weird errors like um, like Google had a photo ID thing that identified black people as gorillas, right? So you might say, well, we already have an alignment problem. We've, we're using these AI techniques on these huge computers. We're pumping all of this data in, and it's kind of like most of the time doing what we want it to do, but some of the time it doesn't do what we want it to do, and that some of the time that it doesn't do what we want it to do it's kind of a, a big problem if you think about it. Now we can look at that on the intelligence side and maybe go, maybe say some things about, well, the computers are really have a superficial understanding of the world. You know, they don't have a deeper understanding like we do as humans, but let's just say, even if we could, or even if we did, or even if we're in a world where some of these AI agents that already exist that are owned by companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google and so forth, like, well, they're already deploying these things and they are interacting with the public at a massive, massive scale. So maybe we should be starting to ask these questions. This is, this connects up not just to moral philosophy, like you're connecting it up to, but also just kind of the, this overlap between you know, ethics and technology, technology, ethicism, or whatever you want to call like technology ethics territory, which is like, well, if, if a particular agent, and if we think of a corporation as an agent is able to deploy these advanced algorithms, which is kind of what AI is from a certain construal, it's just a super advanced algorithms where, where they can specify certain objective functions like add click through or like search result click through or something like this, right? Like, and then they can put behind that way more, you know, energy, data, (laughs) AI research, brain power, you know, like researchers, like, you know, Kurzweil works at Google now. I mean, like there's all these, you know, there's, they're all over there, right? Like to do something like build these apparatuses that something you know, like what are 90 plus percent of the time do something fucking awesome for us. But like some percent of the time 
do these weird things, which were kind of like, ew, like that's weird, right? Like, like just biases, you know, reproducing societal biases at a large scale. Like you might say, like if, if there's already, you know, you know, Google CEO and you image and you just get a bunch of white dudes, right? Like, would, is that all right? Is that not all right? Why would it be all right? Why would it not be right? Are we actually subtly reinforcing certain things that maybe we don't want to be reinforcing? Like, and, and this is something you know where I, I at least hope you're friendly to this discussion. You know, even if you are a moral anti-realist, you know, in your book you talk about you know, um, what is it? We shape our tools and our tools shape us. That's a McLuhan thing, right? And then you said, well, we shape our rules yeah. and our rules shape us. So like. There is no doubt, even if you get rid of just pure Skinnerian behaviorism, this kind of shallow conception, like there's no internal mental states and make it a little bit more advanced and, you know, not coincidentally, some of the most advanced AI techniques do both things, right? There's like a, a rich internal representation in these deep learning networks. And there's like a feedback loop, which is like a Skinner reward function. And they put these two techniques together and they create these fucking giant, Things that like maximize our click through on ads, for example, right? Like that's what they do, right? Like, um, so in in that sense, you know, we are these companies are training these algorithms to do a thing for their objective function, maximize profit, right? And then those algorithms are interacting with the brains of all the users on these platforms, which is to, whatever to, you know to borrow the idea of nudging, right? Like this kind of subtle way of nudging human behavior this sort of direction. That is what the algorithm or the company that built the algorithm wants the users to do. So this does raise, or it can raise, if you if you want, moral or ethical questions about like, well, <laughs> if if a, whatever these nine companies on the world like Baidu and Alibaba and Amazon and Google and Facebook can can like tweak these parameters and do it with resources at their command that we can't or don't have as individuals that essentially like cr nudge our behaviors or our thinking in a certain way, like that is not necessarily a problem, but that does raise potentially ethical issues. Like the spreading of fake news, for example, is just one, right? Like we can talk about all kinds of different issues that can come up out of these things. Well, and let's, let's, um, uh, okay. So um, I like to be fair to this position, even though, with the the current state of affairs, I'm not particularly uh, concerned about it. Mm -hmm. Now, in the future, we could be very concerned mm -hmm. about it. So I listen to folks like Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris uh, talk about limbic hijacking and all of this, this deep asymmetries between the AI programs and us weak little human beings. And I, and I honestly, I, I listen to these guys like right now I'm saying, okay, come on, bullshit, right? Like, it's not complete bullshit. It has enough of a grain of truth to it, but they hyperbolize it to the nth degree. Okay. And the reason that they're hyperbolizing it into the nth degree, I think, is because they're doing a good job of seeing into the future, where the algorithms are become much more capable after having learned us so well. Yes. Okay, so I want to acknowledge that while saying our, currently they don't give human beings enough credit, I think. And and I think that they're they're sort of too steeped in hyperbole right now in order to try to stave off some future. And the way they want to stave off that future is, is patently ridiculous. If they'll even, if they even put it 
anyway, I, I don't want to <laughs> let's spend an episode on that because I really um, I'm 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 not happy with the the Tristan Harris and, and Daniel Schmachtenberger stuff. But I sure. do want to acknowledge one piece of it, which is in the future, if artificial intelligence can get better at doing what they're saying that, that people do, what you said, it might be a small percentage doing that that sort of robs us of agency what 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 then if it gets to be 20 percent? if it gets really good at uh or 25 percent, or maybe even 50 percent of our thoughts and desires and beliefs are from some artificial intelligence and let's heap on top of that the idea that in some future time that the teloi which is plural of telos which is just like the goals of this thing of this entity are its own goals and not someone at Google's goals. Because right now the goal of people at Google um, is, is probably to give people enough of what they want to make a profit and then to basically um, try to introduce some, you know, whatever moral constructs, uh, weak ass moral constructs that some dude in Silicon Valley has that's vaguely left wing <laughs> and, you know, and, and tries to, to shape people into sort of being vaguely left wing because that's how they privilege information. And they think that's the source of all truth, right? Is whatever it is, their moral dispositions are. And they, they've made, they've made it abundantly clear that they're willing to do that in search, right? Yeah. Is to try to shape the information landscape based on their moral dispositions, whatever they are. Mm -hmm. Now take away that those computer geeks with their moral dispositions, such as they are, and replace that with a, a sentient super advanced intelligence that has its own ideas and its own goals. Now we're talking about something really interesting, not just that this being is capable of, I don't know, taking over the East Coast's uh, system of, you know, uh, delivering electricity or some massive, you know, mm -hmm. other thing that humans depend on. It is also good at manipulating us, way better at manipulating us than the status quo is now. Okay, so I think I'm going to push back a little bit on the the way that you're framing this a little bit, but I think we can find some convergence here, right? Because we want to get to this overlap of like foundational questions about moral and ethics, political philosophy, even you know that, and where this sort of overlaps with what AIs are doing, and mm -hmm. um you know, one of the kind of error modes that, you know, that some of the AI safety people will say is like, look, don't, don't ever put a thing into the thing that would be sort of its own telos, right? Like this is, this is kind of like its own objective function for its own kind of survival and whatever. Don't ever do that because that will be exactly the thing that would create the super sci-fi dangerous thing. You could step back from that and you could do sort of the King Midas thing, which is kind of like, well, we gave we uh, we gave it this particular objective or maybe we even gave it like a rank ordering of, of objectives. doesn't matter. We still left something out. Right. It's going to create an externality because it's an optimizer like inside of some unspecified thing. So then, you know, people like Stuart Russell, the author of the AI textbook uh, co-author, he'll he'll say things like we actually should. um create different architectures, right? Different architectures, which do things like essentially follow human preferences, even when human preferences are underspecified and uncertain, right? And this is, 
this actually is a break from the whole way AI has kind of gone up until this point, which is like specify the objective and then you use these advanced algorithmic techniques to achieve the objective. But now if you kind of like, if in the name of AI safety, we do something like say, hey, just make sure this is sort of like Asimov's robot rules or the um, ideas of beneficial AI or friendly AI that we're mm -hmm. talking about that these super intelligence people are arguing like, Right now, there's a there's a there's a whole class of like approaches, and these people kind of create these summits on the benefit of AI. Asilomar, 2017, they did uh, the Future of Life Institute, which which is the podcast that we're talking about here. The Future of Life Institute hosted, I don't know, the something about the beneficial AI that had a huge conference with all these luminaries at it, you know, and they came up with the Asilomar principles and were like twenty something principles of friendly AI. Look, uh, uh, but what? Uh, look, hang, uh, hang on a second. I'm going somewhere with this. You're, if okay. if the solution to this is broadly speaking, follow the preferences of humans, so, some by some construal, either I have my own individual little agent or some giant you know company is specifying whatever that is, like we're still stuck with some moral and ethical reasoning. Like I mean, in, unless you want to talk about like putting in its own self-serving drives, which there's pretty wide agreement like don't do that like in the in the ai fields like yeah no that's the thing that you that's the thing that would create the fucking dystopian scenario for sure right we already have a I dystopian get it. i get it i i get what you're saying okay. and i think i think the listeners do too um and okay i'm gonna i'm going to do uh, maybe surprise you and be a little more pessimistic about this okay and and this is some, for someone who's never wrote a line of code in his life except maybe a little bit of tags on HTML, right? But I take it that part of the way these new advanced AI um, algorithms work is that they're not not all of them are strictly deterministic machines. Mm -hmm. Some of them are probabilistic machines. Yeah, a lot of the advanced techniques are probabilistic or equivalent. And if you can have a probabilistic or iterative machine that learns these feedback loops and 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 is capable of iteration, which you want, yes, in order to be able to have that rapid advance. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible, or at least I don't think it's possible for long to stave off uh, the Darwinian process of a of a random mutation. In other words, complexity. So let's let's appeal for a second to complexity science. If we have these iteration cycles that are so rapid and so um, uh, and and result in non-deterministic, at least from an epistemic standpoint of the human programmer, yeah, right. It might be deterministic at some base layer. We just can't apprehend it in mm -hmm. metaphysical mm -hmm. determinism. But from an epistemic standpoint, the determinism isn't there. We just can't. It's doing things that we can't do because it's smarter than sure. us. And the iteration cycles are happening so fast that something happens and that and it starts to have its own goals. Right. So the idea of don't program that algorithm, if you're doing yeah. if you're dealing yeah. with something that iterates and can and develops complex system internally to itself, you might not have that control. It may bleed out of control. Okay, so, and so I agree with I agree that this is the sub goal thing, the convergent instrumental sub goal. Whatever the external goals are, you might sort of say this agent with enough resources at its disposal is going to create 
sort of these sub goals, which are self-serving, which sort of uh, start to appear like Darwin machines, right? Like survival, yeah. reproduction, like lo- living into the future. Yeah. And what is it? What happens when it starts to kind of develop these? Inter- this is the super intelligence explosion worry, which I, I, I do care about that. I mean, this is so. So the question is, we got to ask ourselves at this point in the conversation, Max, is like, do we want to keep talking about the super intelligence explosion version of that? Or do we want to talk about the alignment problems that already exist? Because there's this is this is actually one of the ways that the AI um, field debates itself, right? Because you have this one school of people that are sort of like, we need to really worry about this fucking super intelligence explosion thing where it starts developing its own instrumental sub goals. And what the fuck are we going to do then? And then there's people who are like, yeah, but we already have AIs that we already know how to build. Not ones we don't know how to build. Ones we do know how to build that are already doing shit we don't want it to do. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And okay. so like these this, well, these are actually on a continuum. And the, it's like we should be talking about the places where we already have an alignment problem, not hypothetical places where we could have an alignment problem. Because the idea is if we solve these here and now ones, this will be the information we need to solve the longer term ones. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, this is really interesting um, because what we've what for me, I've stumbled on, you know, more about this issue, I think, than I do. But what we've stumbled on here, at least. I hope for the listener and for me is it two sets of questions around the alignment problem. First yes. is, uh, should we, you know, ought we be playing with the Promethean fire here in terms of giving uh, artificial intelligence, this capability of iterating and improving on itself uh, to the point of uh, such complexity uh, where it's a prob- probabilistic self-reinforcing feedback loop that becomes so complex that we can't control it anymore and it bleeds out of control on the one hand and then the question is is there are we able to weave into that process some sort of moral substrate where it would always Mm self-constrain right which is the alignment problem well which is the base basis of the alignment problem the alignment problem itself is i think if i understand uh it from what i've heard is can we and the artificial intelligence get a, get aligned around what that kind of good is, what it's looked like, what its programming nature is? Yep. So those are two different sets of questions. They're very closely related. Yes. I don't know if they're in, inextricable. But to answer your question, Michael Porcelli, I think we should talk about the moral, the moral and the meta ethical dimensions because they apply right. in both uh, cases. I think they actually apply either way. Yeah. That was so interesting about this interview with this. Uh, AI moral philosopher was like, look, you can you can take these issues, these perennial issues around ethics and meta ethics, and you can apply them either to superintelligence explosion or to the fucking alignment problem that we currently have with our deep learning algorithms. Well, in the Bill Joys of the world, maybe I don't know if that's fair to Bill Joy, but certainly there are people out there who you might call them neo Luddites. Mm-hmm. Who think we should stop AI research because we don't know what we're capable of when we're playing with this Promethean fire. Yep, yep right? totally. So stop it. Cease and desist before we create a godlike being that wants us to be its slave. Okay. Right. Since since we're never going to stop that, the genie's out of the bottle. And in, in just from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't think you're going to stop this army of people who are doing AI research. I don't think you're going to be able to stop them. <laughs> whether you had From making some a super of, being? From making a super being, I don't think, you know, turn turnkey totalitarianism is going to work. I don't think it's going to work in CRISPR and I don't think it's going to work in AI research either. It might, mm. Um, mm. but I think it would set back the field 
you know, 10, 10, 20 years if you put a moratorium on this kind of research. I think, and I think the researchers would go into a black market of research because mm-hmm. human curiosity is such that they're just going to do that. Now, that being said, I just don't think it's plausible. Mm-hmm. What I think it is imminently plausible, and I agree with folks like Yasan Gabriel on this, is is to start thinking about what it means to weave into the programming, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, some sort of a moral disposition or m- moral constraints on its behavior and self-replication. Mm-hmm. Woo! This is great. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think we're in, we've kind of framed, we, we now have some shared reality about our framing about this particular area of discussion. And um, I think it's tough. I mean, honestly, this is one of the things I sort of love. I was mentioning this earlier. Like, what's sort of cool about the field of AI is it kind of recapitulates almost all of the perennial philosophy questions about consciousness Mm. and the relationship between mind Mm. and matter. What does it mean to reason, thinking about thinking, and kind of moral and ethical issues, which are now kind of at the forefront and like this is i i think it's kind of unavoidable that that it gets there i'll I'll just kind of just dive in with a place where my thinking kind of goes so i can i could imagine um you know something like um like i think he talks about this in the recording too like like an ai agent that's just sort of at my disposal right my own agent Right. It's just me and my agent. Right. We could say maybe there's not really a whole lot of ethical or moral concern. Like what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom. Right. What people do in the private with the privacy of their own AI agent is sort of like kind of up to them. Right. Like, I mean, this sort of goes into weird places where we may say, like, well, what about people who like, I don't know, rape sex robots or something like this? I mean, you can you can create little ones where you sort of scratch your head and go like, is this is this OK? Right. But like, (laughs) I guess if it's just kind of like, right. But once it sort of expands into a population, right, a collective, it doesn't have to be the whole planet. Right. But I mean, think about how many billions of people are on Facebook. That's a pretty sizable chunk of the whole planet, larger than the population of any single country. Right. It's not dominating their whole lives like the state sort of does within a particular territory. But you could you could imagine in a way, once you kind of get to a collective thing, and this is this is where, you know, I, I get I get your meta ethics. You're an anti-realist, you're a constructivist. I'm I'm a constructivist too. But, you know, you you also embrace this thing. We'll go back to we shape our tools and our tools shape us. Like making decisions yes. in the aggregate. Right. You know, we have our favorite versions of this, which are kind of like blockchains and decentralization. Right. I could actually imagine a world where like kind of this centralizing tendency of mega AIs and sort of like the decentralizing tendency of like blockchain enthusiasts are sort of like in an arms race with each other. I mean, there's that's one possible future scenario, which I think is kind of interesting in either case, really how we architect the code. Right. This is that Lawrence Lessig idea of like code is law and law is code. Right. Like this actually sort of creates whatever you want to call it, constraints or nudges us in the in the Thaler kind of Cass Sunstein idea, like in certain directions. And 
this kind of amplification of that capacity is kind of unavoidable, right? Like, I mean, whether you're you're like, hey, I don't like the lefty bias of the people in the, you know, tweaking the search results over there. I mean, I, I could make an argument for you where, you know, that you might be able to buy into, which is, I don't know, like, do we want the algorithms that Google has actually like amplifying, like nudging people into more racism if the search results are reflecting pre-existing racism, right? Like it's a little close to a kind of a critical race theory version on, on search engines, right. but like, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. And it's like, we, who, who's the, we, right. Because some of these answers are fundamentally subjective, right? Yeah. Right. So if from a fundamentally, so if we're, t we're, we're, talking about a subjective um, ethical claim, we might say, I, um, okay, um, I, I don't want to say I want to be racist or something like that, or sure. I ought to, I ought to live separately from people of different races is something that a a racist might claim sure. in their subjectivity and they might present a set of justifications for why they want to do that. Right. Other people by virtue and this. So let me, let me relate this back to one of our other episodes with spiral dynamics. Yeah. Okay. Remember we talked about that there, um, that there are layers of cognitive and spirit and psychological development and moral development mm -hmm. that we more or less agreed is that this, these heuristics paint a picture of what humanity might be like. Right. They're not, you know, it's imperfect. It's not a, but we know that there are layers of this through time. It tracks with history, roughly. We talked mm -hmm. about, you know, blue values and and orange values and green values. And if if folks have not listened to that episode, I I, I encourage you to to go ahead and just look up spiral dynamics. You'll see it. You'll see a, a mapping, colored mapping of the different values. Mm -hmm. The idea is that each of these different value systems evolved out of different life conditions surrounding those values, right? Yes. Now, I want to contravene that a little bit and say, I think that there might be, at least after a certain stage of development, certain kind of timeless universals. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I know I'm sounding a little bit like a moral objectivist here, but I'm not. <laughs> I think we can back ourselves into it with game theoretical uh, mm -hmm. considerations mm -hmm. like like a John Nash or or even a, um, a morals by agreement, David Gautier style contractarian thinking. Mm -hmm. But let's imagine look, there's a, a, a there's like a 4000 year old idea that the yogis have been going around with that we may have talked on the show about on the show before, which is ahimsa. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ahimsa is uh, the opposite of himsa. Himsa is harm hurting someone mm -hmm. in some way. And ah is the opposite of that. So non-violence, non-harm. Yes. Okay. The yogis have been practicing. This is the, the fundamental thing that the yogis have been practicing for 4,000 years. The Jews, same thing. That which is harmful to your neighbor, that which is harmful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's a the negative variation on the golden rule, right? Mm -hmm. The golden rule, the ahimsa, non-harm principle, something like this from, from John Stuart Mill, variations on this theme animate almost every tradition, religious, moral tradition around the world and has since time immemorial. Yep. And we can be, you know, much more tuned into this idea with 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 a very simple thing which is the definition of harm 
as making someone worse off, okay? So let's say we could program a robot to say, don't ever do things that you think through your probabilistic activity, anticipatory activity, might harm someone. In other words, robot practice ahimsa wherever possible. This is what we would like to oblige human beings to do. Yes. In their goings and doings and in their behavior, which is how we have peaceful state of affairs for collaboration, for exchange, for compassion, and all the other things that we would build on that substrate. Yes. Okay. Don't make someone worse off through your behavior. If we could program just that into a robot, that might be that might be pretty good, and we don't even need to resolve some kind of, of debate about whether that's an objective moral fact or whatever, because we can use, um, you know, sort of Nash rationale uh, or David Gauthier style rationale, or even um, there's a little bit of this in the beginning of Rawls, this kind of think game theoretical thinking that can guide, that could guide a, a computer. Yeah. Right. Um, it strikes me that there is something to that, no matter, and, and this is not to say that this is the thing that we should all get aligned around, but boy, it's a sure as hell of a good thing to start looking. Yes. Because we've had it, we've had it for thousands of years. It crosses traditions. It seems to be approaching something that looks not like a Kantian universal, but maybe so. Second mm -hmm. formulation of the categorical imperative sure looks like this thing that I'm talking mm -hmm. about, which is not to make someone's condition worse off. Yeah. If we could just get that into the system somehow, some way, and have that always self-replicate and trump every other consideration that the damn thing has, we would probably do okay with its existence for a while. What do you think about that? Well... The devil's in the details, really. I mean, I, there's there's Absolutely. a number of things you talked about here, which I, you know, I roughly kind of agree with. There's some part of me, I sort of hate the idea of the term anti moral anti-realist because I do think there is, even if I think it's kind of synthetic or constructivist from a social process, I do think there are sort of like whatever you want to call it, like attractors in meta ethical space or something like this, like. We tend to arrive and you kind of had your, you have this like non-aggression principle or non-harm principle, ahimsa. You could think of negative utilitarianism in this way, kind of like rather than like amplifying the utility, like whatever, decreasing the suffering sort of version of utilitarianism. Um, and I could come at it in another way. I could say like like a Habermas view, which is sort of like we need to maintain whatever the, 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 the ra communicative rationality or the ideal speech situation that allows us to converge on whatever social contract we want to make up. So there's sort of like a, a meta level where you kind of have to, it's, it's almost like a pre, a prerequisite to be able to do this kind of stuff. And, and I'm with you, you know, and, and the one that you focused on the non-harm principle. I mean, this is Asimov's, you know, the first and the zero with and the first law of robotics that Asimov came up with in his sci-fi novels. And, you know, the AI alignment, Hippocratic oath, yeah, yeah. And and, yeah. and I mean it's it's yeah, it's 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 a, it it is it it does appear everywhere, but then I think to myself, okay, oh crap. We want to conscript the help of this entity to fight our enemies. Because there's an existential threat from our enemies. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe we should turn that off because it if it have this universal human 
idea that it's not supposed to make any other human being worse off. If we have a human enemy, if we can't turn that off, then we might then we might not be able to beat our human enemy that has a similar AI program for which that is turned off. Right. Now now we're kind of in the sort of recapitulation of the Cold War in a way, right? Yeah. This kind of yeah. like total And then we get into these scenarios of mutually assured destruction which are also game theoretically pretty freaking sound, right? Yeah. Um and and so we are back to these fundamentally human questions. We don't even need the fucking AI in there now. That's right. Right? That's right. Like even the yogis say, uh, you know, or the monks, the Buddhist monks, mm-hmm. they're a warrior monks to this day who practice mm-hmm. every day how to fight and they would kick our asses mm-hmm. day in and day out. Mm-hmm. But they are fundamentally about Ahimsa. Mm-hmm. But Ahimsa doesn't say, don't defend yourself, right? Ahimsa says, don't initiate violence against other people, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Or, or, or make them worse off in some way um, yep. by their lights. Now, there's how we adjudicate that is another interesting set of questions. How an AI might adjudicate that um, is another interesting set of questions. Is there an AI that does the adjudication and so on, right? Very, very interesting and compounding factors that mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. way out of the purview of this conversation really fast. Yep. But you're right. Like, does this look like something more? Yasan Gabriel says, well, what about fairness? Uh, it means fair, equality of outcome which is the sort of mild Rawlsian egalitarianism. What about the least advantaged? Shouldn't some massive AI be concerned about the least advantaged in society first before they are more advantaged people? And that's a very strong moral intuition for a lot of people. Yep. I just call that compassion. Personally, I think Ahimsa has to come first. Otherwise, you're going to make, uh, you're going to use people's sacrificial animals to the, to the least advantaged in society mm-hmm. in ways that could make them miserable. Uh, from mm-hmm. a utilitarian mm-hmm. perspective or a consequentialist mm-hmm. perspective, but another issue altogether. These are all really interesting questions. And I think as soon as we start to approach them, the sort of combinatorial effect of these questions always leads us back to our own human questions. Totally. That we weren't, aren't going to resolve today. No, we're not. We're not going to resolve it. I, I think if, I think we need to kind of like put a pin on the moral ethical philosophy thing because this is not an episode about moral and ethical philosophy, but it is cool to see how these kinds of things come back up when we're talking about AI. I mean, some AI researchers talk about like, well, now is the time we have to finally fucking solve, you know, ethics. (laughs) (laughs) We we started talking about it, whatever, 10,000 years ago, and now we need to fucking fucking resolve it right get to the well and yasan gabriel uh, not to pick on this guy he's, uh, he seems to from from the episode i you you sent yeah, me he yeah. seems to think that john rawls re- resolved it in 1971 with the theory of justice i'm not so sure well but, um we're not going to solve it. you and me are not going to solve it today i think these are open no. questions for humanity the the place where i would connect it would simply be like the reason why they feel a little more urgent is because we can either imagine the superintelligence explosion, like the amplification of something that would be so severe, it would be like worse than the worst state you could imagine, right? It's just this like totalitarian AI that just sort of like, you know, it's like the matrix that just turns us into fucking batteries or whatever the fuck it does, right? Like, or, you know, like today's, in today's world, we're already seeing like, you know, 
is it causing harm if like somebody is like looking at their photos on their phone and it categorizes them as a gorilla? Is that harm? I mean, <laughs> like probably to that person's psychology was like a little <laughs> bit of harm, right? They would have been better off yeah. had that not fucking happened, right? So well, here's an interesting here's an interesting um, thing on that before you yeah. put the pin in the in the yeah. morality stuff and we go to something else, because I, I want to um, it, it strikes me that um, just the, the yogis one more time. I, I, I'm as the older I get, the more I see the wisdom of the ancients as being so profound and so um, worthy of our admiration, respect and practice. Yes. And another one that is in the Yamas, mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember the Sanskrit term, but the idea is non-attachment. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Buddhists have it, the Jains have it, uh, and the, the Hindus have it. Yep. And the idea of non-attachment, this goes back to the, what we were talking about with the Damasio work, mm -hmm. right? Because if we imagine that this guy could make decisions, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who's had the brain damage, that the, he was able to to reconnect his brain and have it work in a holistic fashion, he would be able to make decisions. And likewise, in parallel, he would be able to be motivated to have uh, to make immoral acts against other people in in the service of his desires. Because remember, we I, I want to go back to this idea just momentarily. This idea of desire, because that's something that we definitely have as human beings. We don't know what constitutes it. We don't know the nature of it. But we have it. We have it in yep. spades. Yep. In fact, it is all over our night and day, okay, mm -hmm. is the desires. <clears throat> it helps us make decisions. It helps us have hierarchies of values as individuals. Right. Um, and the yogis teach us that to be moral is to practice non-attachment because it is our desires. And so do the Christians. So do the, every other subsect in the world. So it's not just non, not just non-violence. It's also non-attachment. Mm-hmm. To keep your desires in check, because desire burning out of control is what gets human beings in trouble. It's mm -hmm. what causes us, from a dispositional standpoint, to traverse from the uh, into the profane, mm -hmm. to cross the line into the immoral mm -hmm. sometimes, mm -hmm. because the desire burns out of control. Yep. I really want this. I want this bad enough to do bad to what the community thinks of as bad, if you if you like, right? In some constructivist uh, idea. Right. Yep. Um, and so just to, just to, just to button this up, I'm, I'm really interested. I, I just want to put it out there for the listeners and for us for future consideration. Is this, to what extent does desire, uh, and the idea of, uh, an AI that has desire, uh, feed into the fears and is it, is it worth considering that ancient wisdom of non-attachment in in our understanding of programming AI. Yeah. There, there's, there's a little branch point here and I'm, I'm actually going to stay on this just a little bit longer because I think this is, this is something that we have, we should bring up and it might be occurring to some of our listeners right now, which is like, I'm with you, right? Like in, in terms of like spiritual practice or these kind of transcendent values, or maybe there's some kind of convergence in terms of universal principles that we all kind of end up rediscovering, you know, golden rule or non-harm principle. Like, well, how do we, how do you get there? Right? Well, if, if I look at the texts of the ancients, they'll say, do this practice, right? Like the loving kindness meditation, just as an example, right? Okay, cool. 
And it's like, well, do you do that once? No, no, no. You do it over and over again. Practice right? it. You practice, practice it. That's why they call it a practice. Right. And then you kind of develop this thing. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But there's this whole world of biofeedback and meditation apps and et cetera, right? So once we kind of get this kind of machine human interface more advanced, it could be, I could easily imagine, you know, like an AI system, really not with its own goals. This is not where I'm going with that, but one where it can sort of optimally condition me as the human to, it's just to sort of accelerate the, the practices of the ancients, right? And, and like it can kind of, and this was sort of weird. You have this kind of reward function in the AI and the, re and you, and you might, uh, I, you know, to the, to the extent that there's usefulness to the idea that, that a human being has a utility function. I could, I could be like, look, condition me or develop me. And this kind of goes all the way back to well, how do we educate our children? And which is, this is another place, you know, where in science fiction books, you, oftentimes you have this AI that's interacting with the child from a very early age to help the child develop in the way we want it to, right? Like, so I do think these things are kind of the solution, whether or not it's like an AI or it's just the future of civilization kind of solution, this idea that we could somehow persuade or nudge or however it is we get there, more and more people to have this disposition, right? This kind of win-win disposition or non-harm disposition or whatever, like, I think it is better. I think those people will be like better citizens or they will be better participants in some kind of way that we're aggregating the collective will through some fucking well, and this collective is, this is, voting uh, system or whatever I, the hell. Economies. This is, this is exactly what, what really bothers me about the Tristan Harris style stuff. Okay. Uh -huh. It bothers me in a, some fundamental way that just like it chaps my ass, honestly. Um, it's like whose conception of the ideal person are you going to model in order to replace <clears throat> limbic hijacking with moralistic hijacking? You're going to turn us all into these Tristan Harris machines, but dude, through you, I, through the regulatory apparatus sure. or through the programming. But you're you're it's the like, one who just appealed to these universal principles from the yogis and the ancients. Like you're the one who appealed to them. I know, I know, and that's why th there is a sense that there has to be a universality to it, rather than a Tristan Harris. In particular, he is an embodied consciousness with a particular sure, set sure. of but let's, characteristics. Let, let's not right, talk right? about him. Let's not talk about him. All I'm talking it, about is it could be any given person. But you're it one could of be these Hitler. Sure, Hitler thought of himself as being good. Sure, but you're one of these people too, Saint Francis. <laughs> you know, this is this is the issue. Is once we get once we go back, like this is where moral philosophy comes. Right? It's like we're not just individual agents sort of in a, in a fundamentally disconnected from all the other members of our species we are social right. we are social animals that are in a conversation stretching back millions of years with other, certain life conditions yes. and we have certain life conditions and with each now other. yes with each other there may be no human universals like i'm describing i want there to be i wish it were so and and, and i think that there are certain through lines that tr that uh each of these stages can transcend and include but once you once you get to the i to 
the certain relativized to that particular band, to the circumstances of time and place, yes. as Hayek would put it, it starts to alter or even adulterate the universalized universalizability of it to some degree, right? Because circumstances are everything. And it's what we, how we, it's not, so part of it is like, we have to practice. We yes. have to practice ahimsa every day. This is what I love about Eastern, Eastern traditions over Western tradition. Mill's always going to say, just don't, you know, there's this bare abstract rule out here. Don't harm people. Right. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. You thought word and deed. Every moment you're yes. supposed to practice yes. ahimsa. As soon as you encounter someone and say, am I going to, in my response to this person, am I going to harm them? This is a constant and continuous active practice. That's what's so beautiful about the Eastern traditions. The thing about robots is how do you oblige it to go through iteration cycles of practice itself through some sort of algorithm that is more like game theory than it is more like moral teaching? And I don't know the answer to that. Sure. Right. Because they seem like they could be two different things. But maybe they're not. Maybe there's an overlap. There's a there. There's a mirror issue here. It was kind of funny is like you're just a. Mm, I don't want to like continue an argument that we've already kind of hashed out here too long, but like whether the, let's just take the robots and what they're doing off the table just for a second and simply say like these AI algorithms, the the thing that I think is more interesting about AI is how it can collectively influence massive populations of people that are all interacting with the same algorithmic basis. And that's already happening. And you could say, this is where we need to start thinking about like the alignment problem that we already have today, not a super intelligence explosion version, but like working backwards from there, you're talking about this idea of non-harm. And I'm like, what's interesting here is, and I'm not talking about legislating it or imposing it in a totalitarian way. Like you could say, you know, is Mark Zuckerberg a totalitarian who's imposing something? You could say, well, no, people can just, delete their Facebook account if they want to. And many people have and do, and there's a whole, you know, delete Facebook movement, right? So there's a, there is definitely an opt-in. But as we've talked about in other episodes, social reality gets kind of created through this network effect. It's almost like a, gra a gravitational pull of people towards the thing, and they all want to be there because everybody else is there, right? And then you kind of get something that it's not absolutistic, but it's a subtle coercion of like, well, I want to be there because everybody else is there, right? And then if, then what we're talking about is like, okay, well, we're all there now. And the people who are running that platform are deploying these algorithms that are subtly amplifying our behaviors. Now, I'm not trying to be another Tristan Harris version of this. I'm, I'm just simply saying like, you're the one who's saying, hey, we can do things like amplify Ahimsa as a day-to-day -day practice. And, I, and I'm saying that is a really good function for an AI. You can actually create an AI that creates a feedback loop to a massive amount of people to become more fucking compassionate, which is actually a really interesting thing to do with an AI that millions of people are all interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, particularly if Elon Musk has his way and we can have neural interface with the computers, right? So yeah. we start to blend with the machines at some future stage. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not proposing this as... I'm not proposing this really. I'm merely asking the question. Yeah. Because you're right. Uh, it uh, we could easily get mired in contradiction if we don't take into account particular circumstances of time and place. Mm -hmm. If if survival is let's let's think, call it some sort of ordering function. Mm -hmm. If survival comes before 
not hurting others, particularly if we're going to be attacked. So like, let's say the, 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 yep. the, the logic is if someone doesn't try to harm me, then don't try to harm it. Don't make mm -hmm. it worse off. If someone, if, if that person is not trying to make me worse off, yeah. then don't try to make it worse off. Right. That would be the kind of if them statement that you could yeah. program into a computer. It's like a tit for it tat. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a game theoretical construct, yeah. right? There's, and there's all kinds of them. And, you know, Freeman Dyson and all these people have been like running these kind of things like advantage taking versus cooperation games. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Maybe you unleash the supercomputers on these kind of simulations to find some are whether or not they're these universals. That's kind of another interesting avenue of inquiry. There are people doing that right now. I think that's going to have application with AI. Um, and honestly, I don't know if there is any if I mean, if I'm kidding myself and calling something like this some sort of ancient wisdom or human universal when actually all it is is a fucking moral heuristic. And that I'll abandon it as soon as I think that I have to preemptively harm someone who just is in my yard with a gun, <laughs> you know, yeah. or whatever. I mean, like, yeah. there, there's so many of these circumstances that make this really freaking hard. And and yeah. so, um, take yeah. us take us home, baby. Land, let's let's land the plane. I think we have a few. We have like five more minutes. Oh my god! I want to make sure we get to all the things that you wanted to in this episode because <laughs> your 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 big brain is full of this stuff. It is. It is. So. Um, there, there's a, there's a, I want to go back to the cognition aspect and, and kind of leave behind the ethical or moral one. Cause we could spend forever there and it's fun to, to go there. Um, but like one of the interesting things about the field of AI is it really places us in a fundamental kind of question of like, what, well, what is, what is human intelligence? This is, I'm, I'm kind of revisiting back where we kind of started off. And um, one of the things to kind of this idea of like AI that we can trust or AI that we can believe in or AI that we, that does more of what we want to do than um, it currently does. Right. Or one that maybe is less likely to do the super harmful things. There's, there's a certain school of thought that, uh, we like the the errors let's say these big deep networks these deep neural networks do right now let's leave aside this kind of like oh you know bias in search results issue which we're, we just had in this previous part of our conversation there's actually ways these things are very easily fooled right like you can move the atari you know little breakout barrier thing by a couple of pixels and the thing that like was was like superhuman at beating that game disappears right or uh you know the go board is 19 by 19 squares but if you make it 19 by 18 squares fucking algorithm has to start over again or like a, a self-driving car goes like that's a stop sign and you put a fucking sticker on it and it goes like that's a speed limit sign and like but to you and me we look at it and go like no that's clearly still a stop sign with a sticker on it right like this idea of how so easily fooled some of these so-called deep learning things it's it's almost like a misnomer it's not very deep at all really and the idea that we don't well and that goes back yeah the initial changes in uh changes in initial condi conditions can make 
gigantic macro effects in, com in complex systems theory. And I'm sure with these probabilistic machines uh, uh, versus deterministic machines, you can more easily discover how the, how the these these things that are so good in one specific narrow context, slight changes in initial conditions can make uh, what is it called in complex systems theory? Um, the well, there, there's also the sand uh, self-organizing criticality. Yep. Right. Yep. That you probably go through phases of of uh, it being really good, and then all of a sudden it's terrible, and then it goes back to relearning yep. and relearning and builds up again, and then collapses again. So I'm sure there's all kinds of ways that you can get these, particularly with these deterministic systems that are non-deterministic from the standpoint of the observer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they, <laughs> the point here is that they, they suck at doing what we're good at. Like, this yeah. is, yeah. it's, a, it's a, a saying in AI, like, the easy things turn out to be super hard, right? And these things that we mm -hmm. thought were super hard, like, pinnacles of the human intellect, like a chess playing program or Go, actually, we can do them because of how actually constrained and narrow the problem is. But doing something like learning how to talk, like you're, you know, one-year-old does. We still don't know how to make that thing do that thing, right? Like it only sort of imitates in a way where we can easily do these things. Called, like they're called adversarial examples. We can easily introduce a little perturbation. And it's just obvious that this is something that looks more <coughs> like a parlor trick, right? It looks more like it's, it's a fairly shallow thing. And like this actually comes back to, you know, if, if the last part of our conversation, this thing was, isn't thinking; it's just running a damn program. Right, right. So instead of thinking, yeah. we need to think deeper about moral and ethical issues. We also need to think deeper about our own form of thinking, and you know this simple way of, um, you know, in Aristotle's syllogism was kind of a, a form of deductive reasoning. You know, Socrates is a man, and all men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Right. This is an analytic thing, right? You're just unpacking the truths that are already built into the statements. Well, this was one form of AI, which was symbolic AI. And then there's like what's called sub-symbolic AI, which is a little bit more like um, induction like or, or um, <laughs> rationalism and empiricism, right? We're just sort of like extrapolating. But like now you're not really getting causality. You're just getting correlation. Correlation does not necessarily mean causation, right? So like you could have... Uh, one of these neural networks is like really good at anticipating things like, you know, what the next thing is going to be, you know, 90% of the time or greater, or it's outperforming humans in a certain way, but it doesn't outperform humans in our ability to be sort of a, uh, resilient to weird examples. Like when something really off happens, we actually adapt very quickly. Like, Hey, that's just a fucking sticker on a stop sign. Not like, Oh, that's a, just a speed limit sign. We just blow right past it. Right? Like we're not that dumb. You know what I mean? Like, so there's something about the way we actually do our thinking that AI doesn't totally understand. And this is something I want to really emphasize for our listeners because the hype around, oh my gosh, the deep learning thing did this. I mean, Watson beat people on Jeopardy. That means whatever. AI has finally arrived. AI has finally arrived. This hype cycle gets us in a way sort of overestimating and amplifying up these fear-like things. And if actually we could, you know, moral philosophy aside for a second, get the thing to think more like we do, it might actually become more trustable. So, I mean, and then there's kind of a, there's an interesting question here of like, can we get it to think 
in this actually deeper, more human-like way, what's called you know human-level AI or artificial general intelligence, whatever we might mean by that, this ability mm-hmm. to you know pursue goals across a variety of environments and circumstances, not just super narrow ones like a chessboard. You know what I mean? Like, well, if we could get it to do that, like it might actually, um, you know, be more reliable in a way. And this is actually one of the kind of paradoxes. It's like, well. On the one hand, we don't want to make it more human-like, like build in a survival drive, because then we're going to get this fucked up super intelligence explosion faster, right? Like if we let it loose, right? But on the other hand, we want it to reason a little bit more like we do. And, and it kind of goes right to this thing. Look, some of the stuff we don't understand about ourselves, and we, we talked about this um, on another one of our, our, our psychedelic episodes, like we don't understand where hypothesis generation comes from in the scientific method. We don't understand how, oh, we look, I don't know, we're pattern matching, we're making an analogy from one domain into another domain, or we're creating a hypothesis, you know, some kind of what sort of feels like from our point of view, like ingenuity or inspiration or con- a, a cognitive inventiveness, like like the light bulb above the head in the cartoon, you know what I mean? Like, bing, where did we come up with it? We, we don't know yeah. how to put that in a computer at all because it's not... No just analytically deducing from pre-existing premises and it's not just extrapolating in a kind of statistical way which is all the deep learning networks do right which it's is why else. for for the foreseeable future it just it seems to me in the absence of having that because desire i think drives creativity going back to desire again and i i think that's why for a long time that that the, the human creativity with uh, motivated by the flame of desire, constrained desire, it gives us, uh, impels us in, in some respects for all sorts of reasons that come with our human baggage to, to be creative. Mm-hmm. You might even say it's, you know, motivated reasoning. Uh, sure. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Um, I, I actually, you know, I talk about in the after collapse, the idea that motivated reasoning deserves two cheers, especially when it's there is a, co- a collective of people with different motivations and you start to get all kinds of different um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all kinds of different discoveries because of those motivations. Yes. In any case, we can't con- con- continuously think of ourselves as 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 being non embodied cognitions. Right. So let's accept some of that. And figure out how to channel it to appropriate effect on a sense-making scale, right? Yes. Um, and that, that of course, you and I are obsessed with, and we we may do another episode on that. Yep. But with I I I I think about my little girl. She's 13 months old. I have three kids. The the youngest is 13 months old right now. Um. And I joke around with her and call her robot dog, because she gets in the cabinets and starts pulling out cups and stuff, and she wants to play <laughs> with them. And yeah. I don't want her in the cabinets because she makes a damn mess, right? Yeah. Anybody who has a toddler is just like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. But like you have to pull her away, pull her away, pull her away 40 times. She's like a robot dog. She's always back to it. She wants to pet the kitty. We have this yeah. aged kitty in our house who who's really in pain and he's like he's on his he's on his last legs. Uh, in terms of his lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet she always wants to go pet the kitty and she's rough with him because she's a toddler. She doesn't know any better. And I pull her away, take her into another room, set her down, and she boop, 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 right back to the kitty. Right? Yeah. Her, her, her sense of goals is already just wow. Like, 
thinking about, you know, just already at 13 months old, the combinatorial effect of her little human brain uh, is already very goal oriented. Yes. And wow. Right. So um, I think there is I, I, I want to close at least my portion of this by saying I think one thing that AI researchers don't always do is try to understand the philosophical yeah. questions and questions of what does it actually mean to be human? Mm-hmm. I think some, I think there is a interdisciplinary overlap there It's and it's getting to be more and more. I think a lot of AI researchers are, you know, start off as programmers yeah. and they think in terms of sort of just like modal logic and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and start to, but, but appreciating what it means to be human is, is going to help us. I believe, um, grapple with the issues of AI better. Um, and, and some of that is going to be uh, reckoning with the philosophical issues, the moral issues, for example, as well as advanced cognitive science and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think for me, part of, part of what I'm hoping to accomplish in this is, is to share a little bit of something like a sense of wonder and bewilderment to, to a degree, like mm-hmm. the, the reaches of human intellect or what we mean by intelligence or what our minds are doing when we're doing things like, you know, creating an inference to the best explanation. You know, the thing that Charles Saunders Peirce called the um, purse. Versus yeah. ab- abduction. Abductive inference, right? Abductive reasoning. Yeah, yeah. abductive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't, that, that's where our hypotheses come from. That's where our so-called explanations or theories come from. But like, we don't really know how we come up with that. And like, there may be interesting developments in, in cognitive science and computer science, cognitive psychology and so forth that, that lead us to understand that. And this is kind of to your point of like, in a way, the, the tracking of the understanding of the human mind and how human cognition works and the building of AI, kind of these are parallel fields. The cognitive science and AI kind of came around the same time. It was like in the late 1950s and these track each other. But like there is still, in a way, you know, we are sort of pre-theoretical, right? We're not, we haven't even had the Newton moment, really, I don't think. I think it's actually... A pretty wide open space to like, to like, oh, here's what fucking this thing is that whatever abductive inference or whatever that thing is, hypothesis generation is so core to our intelligence that it's like, oh, we'll kind of go like, oh, got it. Yeah, this is why this kind of pure deduction or this pure kind of correlation statistical thing don't lead to genuine intelligence. We can do something. We still don't know how to program computers, how to do. You're going to, you're going to reach through the camera and slap me, Uh-oh. but I want to respond to that by saying yeah. yes. And we cannot forget about the explanatory gap because I think there is consciousness <laughs> required is somewhere in there uh, that we're not going to, you know, right now it's black box behaviorism and artificial intelligence uh, kind is, of. could be where we are. And um, yeah. if we can, do better on the side of uh, the problem of consciousness, we may get some insights that we 
that can help us. Yeah, yeah. I think I think both. Are, I mean, that that's a more fundamental breakthrough potentially at a physics or like a theory of everything level, which we talked mm-hmm. about in our consciousness episode. And maybe they are related. Maybe they're not related. I'm 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 a bit agnostic as to like whether the consciousness is required for the intelligence or something like, or the but you intelligence did roll your eyes. I saw you and I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I want also our listeners to just be mm, cautious, cautious of the hype. I think it's kind of the, the point that I just covered, but to yeah. also be kind of grappling with something that I think is one of our perennial themes, right? Like, which is, the relationship of humans to our tools, especially these things, you could call them cognitive artifacts, right? We have tools that are like, you know, stone tools and spears and shit like that. But you can think about like an abacus or a calculator. These are things that are sort of rather than extension of our muscle power to like alter, you know, matter around us. It's actually more extensions of our intellectual power, which actually alters matter at a much larger scale in the end. Right. But it is, these tools that we use, like computers, like video games, like AI algorithms that we interact with, you, we interact with AI all day long, every day. Most people who have a fucking smartphone are interacting with AI all of the time. And there are ways that those AIs can shape our behavior that I think makes us kind of dumber or like more narrow ourselves or there are ways we can use these tools as like rather than like a, in a way that our, our minds are actually sharpened and improved by using that. I, like I, I and more and more moral hey sure. AI yes. assistant help me be more like the Buddha right yeah right hey AI assistant make help me be more like Mother Teresa mm-hmm. I have all, I have all of these dispositions I will never be Mother Teresa, but make me more like her. Help me help shape my help shape my behavior to be more like her. Remind me to be conscientious and loving and this and that. Whatever it is your archetype is. Help me mm-hmm. be more like Tristan Harris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what whatever it is, I would say, you know, the, A- the AIs and AI algorithms are probably. I feel fairly sure about this. Like the most um, kind of incredible tools we've ever created out of the whole history of human tool making stretching, you know, back hundreds of thousands of years that um, can affect who we actually are. Our interaction with these tools actually really affects us in a way unlike anything we've ever created before. And it can be for better or for worse. So anyway, amen. You got it, brother. It's true. All right, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of social evolution, where we talked a lot about AI and hopefully this was enlightening for you and your understanding of it, the world we live in today. 